afternoon. Um, I hope that song sits with you because the message that it gives is really about where I, our identity is found. Um, and I don't know about you, but for me, uh, there have been times in my life where, especially as a, like a teenager at high school, um, people tell you all sorts of things about yourself that just are not true. Kids are mean. Um, and sometimes when you hear those things time and time again, you start to believe them. Um, but what I want to kind of share today is that with all of that rubbish that people might say about you, there's actually a truth that is said about you in where your identity is found. Um, and that's found in your relationship with Jesus. And through him, that's really all that matters. But in order to do that, I want to share a little bit of my own story um, around some of the the challenges I find in my own life and what that does in relation to my relationship with Jesus. Okay. Um, now, as Galen was saying, I do trust services for the Victorian Conference, but also South New South Wales, Tasmania, and re- most recently South Australia as well, but I got rid of them. Um, They've appointed some other people there, but there's a lot of work involved in doing that. And it actually suits me really, really well because the role is, as Galen was saying, it's meeting with people and getting instructions for what they want to do with their wills and then getting that drafted up. There is a lot of dotting I's and crossing T's and making sure everything is done perfectly. My personality type is one that has very strong perfectionistic tendencies, And so it's really a role made for me. But the downside to that is when it comes to my relationship with Jesus, that my personality trait of perfectionism sometimes flows into my expectations of myself and others when it comes to Christianity. Now, there's nothing wrong with having perfectionistic tendencies. In fact, they can come in really, really handy. So Emma and I have been married coming up towards eight years. Um, Don't ask her, she can't tell you. Um, But we had this weird dynamic when it came to planning our wedding. Now, how many of you guys have planned a wedding before? Yeah? When it comes to planning a wedding, there is often a lot of things to get organised, a lot of lists that you have to make so you don't forget anything, things you tick off and make sure things are done right. Um, a lot of stress and anxiety that comes with that because you may forget something or forget to mention someone or whatever that looks like. Um, but we added a little bit of an extra dynamic on ours. Now, Emma's a teacher. For those of you who work in a school environment, teachers don't have a lot of spare time um, at all. Um, they barely have time to sneeze. Um, and so there she is teaching, trying to organise this wedding, But at the same time, our whole relationship up until we got married was done by long distance. And so we met, we got together, um, and then Emma moved to Melbourne and I was up at Avondale. And then two months later, I moved to New York and Emma was in Melbourne. And then six months after that, um, I moved back to Avondale and she's still in Melbourne. Avondale is in Kurumbong, which is like just south of Newcastle for those playing along at home. Um, And... The longest period of time that we ever spent together before we got married was a continuous period of 12 days. That was it, 12 days. And so it was on a trip that we went to America for a friend's wedding. 
Um, and we spent 12 days together, and that was where we got engaged. It was like, you know what? If we can last 12 days together, I'm pretty sure we can last the rest of our lives together. And so we get engaged, and then I'm back at Avondale, up just south of Newcastle, and she's still in Melbourne. And we're trying to plan a wedding in Melbourne while she has no spare time, and I'm interstate. My perfectionistic tendencies, and I think a little bit of our joint experiences prior to this, came in really handy. Because Emma has worked uh, in kind of events, the event space for a little bit before teaching, um, dealing with some big kind of large-scale events and knowing about being organised and getting everything done on time and working to timelines. My undergraduate degree was in business management, majoring in tourism, specialising in event management. So the ability to organise an event was something that I could do. And so we are, what I feel, is the most unique couple in wedding history in that we had nothing to do and stress about in relation to our wedding for the whole month leading up because everything was done. We'd planned, you know, the meals, we'd got suits, ties, cufflinks, dresses, all of that was sorted and we had a really easy breeze in to that, that wedding thing. We did forget one thing and we didn't realise this until the day which was at the reception, you generally have the bride or bride and groom give a speech. We hadn't organised that part. And so we wrote our speech whilst everyone else was giving their speeches because that was the one thing. But it didn't stress us out. Um, so our, my perfectionistic tendencies, I feel, came in very handy in that regard because detail-oriented. It helped a lot. But my perfectionistic tendencies also become quite a barrier for me. And it may become a barrier in my personal life, but also in my spiritual life, because the idea of I need to do things perfectly that I think about in personal life flows into my spiritual life as though if I don't do things perfectly, God won't love me enough. God won't accept me without this perfect thing to do. So in order to example this, I need a volunteer. Volunteer, unfortunately, needs to be at least 16. So sorry to the, the people younger than that because of the size. I mean, if we don't get someone else, I'll take someone under 16. Don't you worry. Pauline's going to come up. All right. Pauline, you need to, um, you need to explain to people um, you, you live in a household. I live in a household. Yep. yep. Um, who lives in your household? Me and my husband. You and your husband. Yep. Um, and how do you uh, break up your domestic chores? Oh, um, I think we, like, for example... A bit closer okay. to the mic. Um, if I'm cooking, then he's cleaning, or sometimes if the, the chore is really um, overwhelming, like, you know, cleaning the garage or, well, unpacking because we've just moved in, um, we both take it okay. and say, I'll, you know, all the heavy things you do or the more detailed things I'll do. Yeah. Okay, so you break it up a little bit. Yes. Who does the dishes mainly? He does. Okay, who does the vacuuming? Me. Who does the laundry? Me. Who makes the bed? Me. So you break it up so that you do 90% and he does 10? Sometimes. He does more like the heavier things. <laughs> okay. Like, or the, the wet things. I don't like them. So you don't like the wet? So the bathrooms? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Know. All right. So. <laughs> I bring with me a washing basket, and what I need you to do, 
because you do this at home apparently, is show me how to fold things. Okay? So we're going to start basic. You can go there. Um, let's start with a pair of socks. I promise everything's clean. So how would you fold a pair of socks? I'm a bit nervous because there's a few ways. I'll show you how Mark folds them. Mark folds them by doing this. And then so when he gets them, they kind of just <sighs> like that. But I fold them the Marie Kondo way. Does anyone else watch Marie Kondo? Oh. I've... <laughs> and she does that whole like, does that. Well, a better version of that. And then she kind of stacks it. Like, like Alright, so I'm, I'm going to go with you. So this is how we fold socks in my house. And by we, I mean me. So my perfectionistic tendencies are so strong, yeah. I don't allow Emma to do the washing. She can't, she can't hang the washing out, partly because she can't reach the line. Um, okay. But when she does hang it out on the clothes horse, there's too many creases in the wrong spots and it just irks me. Okay? Um, and when it comes to folding washing, she does it wrong. And so it's on me. Um, when she tries to help me out, if I'm away and she wants to, to help me out and you know I come home to folded laundry... She has to grab something, one item of everything out of my cupboard so she can use it as a template in order to know that when I come home, I won't just undo it and do it my way instead. So when it comes to socks, you always have one inside and one outside. You don't have to stand on one leg when you do it. Similar to the Marie Kondo, and that way when you fold it out, you've got the fabric there, and so then in your drawer, it will sit up. Okay, so I'm okay with your sock folding technique. All right, let's go with towel. Towel, ooh. This is sort of like one of those wet items that I don't really <laughs> take care of as much, but I've just moved in for the first time. Yep. And it's like, so all right. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm okay with this, but I'm gonna. It's not quite right. So, the first thing that you did, I'm not okay with. Okay, the seams always have to be inside. What's the difference? You don't want the seams to be seen. Oh, that. Oh, okay. And the reason you always fold it lengthways to start with is because when you pull it out of the cupboard and put it on the towel rail, it sits nicely over the towel rail. So the second step is to get it in half, and then you do your thirds. Oh, yeah, that's a very okay. And then when you put that on your shelf, so let's put it on your shelf that way, if you have the matching towel, the next one has to go that way and then that way so that when they're in the cupboard, they're not uneven. So it's just like a flat surface, okay? Um, all right. We're going to go with some underwear. All clean, I promise. How would you fold underwear? Okay, Mark has a different way of doing it. His, his is simply just that. Because he goes, just ease. He just wants ease. But I do the whole, well, I attempt. I do the whole like Marie Kondo thing again. I should have got someone else. And then I try to do that whole thing. All right. Again. So the thing you've missed on the Marie Kondo, there's always something. So you got to go. You, you've gone in. You've got to go out. I'm close. I'm close. 
And then again, when it's tucked in, that can just sit in your drawer, upright, and you can fit more in your drawer. I feel like he's a student of Marie Kondo. <laughs> um, I have not watched Marie Kondo, by the way. Oh, really? Well. Um, all right. This is your last one. Again, this is a marketing, as it's um, larger than judge. Um, <sighs> I'm a little bit stressed. I'm a little bit stressed. Encouragement. It's a big shower cap. It's a big shower cap. Okay, I'm tired because I'm an average. Okay, so we've just moved in. I only own one, one of these. We haven't, we're still figuring it out. As we speak. So, You've been married for how long and you only have one fitted sheet? Well, we just moved out. We, we were still with parents. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Something like this. I feel like... You may sit down. Thank you so much. You. That's horrible. Um, this is my perfectionistic tendencies. I mean, when we do laundry in my house, we mean business. Um... What this does mean, however, is that it takes forever for the laundry to get done because I don't allow Emma to do it and she does try to help. But the reason that I am exampling this is not so that I can show you that, hey, I can fold a fitted sheet and you can't. Um, I can fold a fitted sheet flat. It's one of my, uh, one of my techniques, one of my what are they, party tricks. Um, but the reality is my perfectionistic tendencies get in the way of living a full life because I judge people so much. This is not working for me today. Um, and oftentimes, you go corner to corner and then corner to corner. Um, oftentimes, my perfectionistic tendencies can lead to paralysis, as in I can't decide what to do next. Or if I'm not going to do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it at all. I'm a big fan of the thirds. Is that a Marie Kondo thing? I even do my t-shirts in thirds. And there you have a flat fitted sheet. It's possible. Unlike these people who are just like, where's the cupboard? Over there somewhere. Um, so my... My perfectionistic tendencies in my personal life actually impact my spiritual life as well. Um, I like to say that I have OCD, but I am so sometimes OCD that it needs to be called CDO, so the letters are in the right order. That's how bad it gets sometimes. Um, but this aspect to things really does impact my relationship with God. But God tells me in the book of Hebrews that he will never leave me nor forsake me. Yet, my thinking is, if I don't do this perfectly, God doesn't want me. If I don't behave in the right way, God won't accept me. But that's not what God says. Now, the perfectionistic thinking in relation to salvation has many negative impacts on our lives and, become, and can become quite destructive. So the first thing that I want to share with you is that your perfectionistic thinking, if this is you, now this is me, so I'm not, no judgment on you, this is just on me. It does lead to paralysis and procrastination. So 
Last Saturday evening, Emma and I went to Chadston um, for a Picasso plate painting workshop. That's a lot of words to say, and if you don't say it slowly, you're going to jumble it up. And we're sitting there. It was an hour and a half or something, very short time period to paint a plate. Um, This is not pizza. And we're sitting there and almost got into an argument on my side of things because I honestly could not start, could not do a thing. I'm trying to start, but I'm like, it's not going to be perfect, so why bother? This is ridiculous. I can't do this. I'm not a creative. Why are we here? Um, Like, we're having a fairly good conversation in public like this. And eventually I start. Now, this is not me saying, look, I can paint. But eventually I get a plate and I paint this. Okay. Now, when I tried to do an eye to start with, it looked like a stalk of wheat. It looked nothing like an eye. Um, and I gave up. I threw my, my paper across the way. I gave up. But when you look at this closely, you can actually see some imperfections, okay? You don't even have to look that close to find them. If you look here, with my eyelashes here, all of these brush strokes are up, except this one on the end, which is down. That really annoys me. On this eyelash, all of these are the same width and length, except this one on the end here. And that really annoys me. But what I have found as I've reflected on this is that that little eyelash and that little eyelash are my two favorite bits of this whole plate. Because the imperfections have added character. And the imperfections have added nuance to that creation. But initially, my perfectionistic thinking kind of went, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Why are we here? It led to paralysis. Ecclesiastes tells us that whoever watches the wind will not plant and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. That is to say, if we wait for the perfect conditions in order to develop our relationship with God, if we wait for the perfect conditions in order to do anything, all we're likely to ever do is wait. There is never going to be a perfect time. There is never going to be the perfect setting. All we need to do is start. A lot of people um, who may grow up in church and then leave church are like, oh, I still believe, but I'm not going to go to church. I might start going to church when I have kids. So my kids, well, why wait until then? Why not start now? Develop those habits. The other thing that perfectionistic thinking leads me in my relationship with God is that I think that salvation then is only reserved for the elite. But when I reflect on what's in Scripture... I look at Jesus' ministry and I see that he actually could have been classified as the elite but spent most of his time with those who were not elite. And so if Jesus is reaching out and spending time with those who are not elite, why then do I think I have to be elite in order to be seen in his favour? The other thing that perfectionistic thinking and perfectionistic theology tells me or leads to is that I have 
unrealistic expectations of others. Now, let me ask a question here. How many of you enjoy being nagged? Interestingly, no one. Proverbs 17 tells me that whoever would foster love covers an offence. But whoever repeats the matter, nagging, separates close friends. Perfectionism and perfectionistic theology, perfectionistic thinking, leads to a desire to correct. But if what I desire is a relationship with God, then what that truly leads to is a desire to connect. And when you're connecting, you forget about correcting because it's just about that relationship that you have with God. Whilst I might have unrealistic expectations of others, I also then have an unrealistic expectation of myself. It's perhaps the most detrimental side effect to being a perfectionist. It simply says, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not whatever enough. Um, I'm not enough hair on my head enough. But Ecclesiastes, great book, read right through it, I would encourage you. Do not be over-righteous. Do not be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Why focus on being a perfect person when it's unachievable? Why destroy yourself when all God wants is you as you are? The reality of perfectionistic thinking is that it focuses on me rather than drawing my focus to God. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. In all of that, I'm never saying because of God's plan for me, because of the death Jesus died for me, I'm acceptable to him. It's almost as though, with that focus on me, that I put maximum effort into making myself good enough because I'm focusing on myself. I want to reduce the amount of indiscretions and sins that I have, but increase the amount of good contributions that I make as though that sin quotient to good quotient is going to do anything for my salvation. And it consumes my time and my energy. It makes me focus on Christian living rather than Jesus. Sorry, it makes the focus of my Christian living on myself rather than on Jesus. But I want to ask you, imagine the focus or the the change in your church community if we spent as much time focusing and carrying on what the Bible calls the least of these as we do worrying about our own behaviours or even the behaviours of others in our communities. My perfectionistic thinking, my perfectionistic habits often lead to a time of isolation. I tend to find or create almost monastic singular communities, whether that's a physical community um, or whether that's a kind of virtual community. I create walls and barriers to connect with other people because if you're not perfect in my eyes, Why do I want anything to do with you? 
but I'm also worried that you may see that I'm not perfect, and so why would you want anything to do with me? So I just keep a, I keep a distance. But the most important thing for you to remember about perfectionistic thinking and perfectionistic way of behaving in your Christian life is that ultimately it shows that you lack faith. It shows that the assurance we have that Jesus has achieved it all, we don't actually believe that. In fact, what we say is God is not capable of helping mankind without my effort as though I am God. It makes God and salvation dependent upon man rather than man dependent on God's salvation. It suggests that we must live a life that focuses on works rather than faith in order to earn the salvation that has been promised to us. John chapter 11 in the Bible says, and it's Jesus speaking, Jesus says to her, I and the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks the woman, do you believe this? Do you believe that simply by believing in me, that's all that you need to do? And the reality is, in my Christian experience, I don't think I've believed that the whole time. There you go, I'm a pastor saying that. So if a pastor can say that, certainly you can say that. But when we replace my perfectionistic thinking, and it's a struggle each and every day, when we replace that perfectionistic thinking and those patterns of perfectionistic thinking in relation to how we we live our spiritual life, we find a liberating power in the truth of God. And so here are some quick-fire points as to what that liberating power might look like. The first one is, I don't always have to measure up because no one's perfect. Surprise, you're not perfect. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just some of us, not just those on that side of the church have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but also those on this side of the church and those in this section of the church. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second thing that we can learn when we do this properly is that I never have to fear losing God's love because of anything I might have done or might continue to do. God loves me just the same. Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are things that I've struggled with. These are things that I continue to struggle with. But what I find, the next point, is that I can stop comparing myself to others because God didn't want me to be like you. God wanted me to be me, a unique, individually created, one-of-a-kind person. He says in Psalms 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The fourth thing that this teaches me is that I can confidently take on new challenges, that I'm not limited to doing only the things at which I excel. And one of the things I think I excel at is Excel. I really enjoy Excel. Um, I often try and make 
to try and break Excel. When I was in university doing my undergraduate degree, don't ask me to do this today, but somehow in Microsoft Excel, I designed an 18-hole golf course with paths on everything and there was a dog leg here. Don't ask me to do it again, but apparently it's possible. So I excel at Excel, but I can confidently take on other things that I am not excellent at, like trying to paint on a plate. Not excellent at it, but I can confidently take it on because Proverbs tell me, for the Lord will be at your sight and keep your foot from being snared. You don't need to worry about what might happen if you mess up, if you put a foot wrong. God is there. The fifth thing that I can learn is that I am free to enjoy life because God doesn't want me set into bondage by this set of rules and regulations that I've put on myself. God simply says, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. John 3.16 tells me, For God so loved the world that everyone who believes in him will be saved. Not everyone who believes in him and keeps these sets of rules that I've placed upon you and carries this yoke and this burden. That's not what it says. It says, my yoke is easy, my burden light, the Bible tells me. And the sixth thing that I can learn is that the things that I have held on to, the perfectionistic tendencies that I lean into, I can forget about the need to be there because Christ is there instead. Philippians 3, whatever were gains for me, my perfectionistic thinking, I consider as a loss for the sake of Christ because nothing else matters except my relationship with him. Christian author and counsellor Jane Hunt makes the following statement. God calls you to be a pursuer of excellence, not a prisoner of perfectionism. That is to say, yes, bring the best that you can as you come to God, but don't be bound by the fact that it has to be perfect. It just has to be the best that you've got. Be a pursuer of excellence and not a prisoner of perfectionism. Excellence and perfectionism are two vastly different things. We present our best to God in the limited capacity that we have because we know, as the Bible tells us, that your best are like filthy rags. You've heard the, the phrase or the saying, you can't see the forest from the trees? That's, that's me. Sometimes I get so caught up on that slight little detail that I don't see the beauty that's in front of me. I prune the roses at home occasionally. And as I prune the roses at home, you know, you prune a little bit on this side and then a little bit on that side and maybe a little bit off the top, or in my case, a lot off the top. Um, and as you step back, in front of you, you should see a rose bush because that's what's in front of you. But I'm so fixated on making sure this rose bush is symmetrically trimmed that I forget that there's a rose bush and all I see is that this side is a little bit further in than this side and so I grab my, my shears and I start cutting again and now this side is out of balance with this side and the top needs to have a bit more taken off and so I keep cutting 
until this is like I'm not even lying. I, I've done this multiple times. I keep cutting until all I have is this little stump and no bush at all. Because I'm so fixated on things that don't matter, anyone else would walk up and go, oh, that's a rose bush. It looks okay. And I'm like, it's a rose bush that isn't perfect. It doesn't matter. Likewise with our faith, it may not be perfect. But so long as you bring your best, you bring with excellence all that you have, that's all that God cares for. So I wonder in your life, what's the personality trait that you have that might be uniquely yours that truly impacts your ability to connect with God in a real and meaningful way? What personality trait or thing do you do creates a barrier to having full Christian experience. God has given us counsel to set us free from this sort of thinking. He's given us the gift of salvation as a gift because he knows that even our best efforts won't get us there. Because your best efforts, sorry to say, they're never going to be enough. But as the song told us at the start of this, Whilst you might think you are unworthy, whilst you might be hearing from Satan that you're a loser and you're not going to achieve salvation, the reality is there is truth to some of that. But the ultimate truth is you don't need to worry about it because God has come over the top of that and said, I have created a way for you to achieve salvation. I died a death on a cross so you can achieve salvation. And so if you want to accept that gift, simply recognize that you are a child of mine and live in that truth, live in that freedom. Most of the Christian greats through history have tried this performance-based Christian life. The likes of Martin Luther and John Wesley tried this. Martin, oh, sorry, John Wesley's conversion statement illustrates his change quite well. He listened as a Moravian Christian read the preface of Martin Luther's biblical commentary on the book of Romans. Now, if you ever want to be put to sleep, having someone read to you the biblical commentary on the book of Romans might be a way to get put to sleep. It doesn't sound the most exciting thing. When you read a commentary yourself, sometimes it can get a bit boring, but when someone else reads it to you, imagine how much more boring that could be. But Martin Luther's commentary on Romans was John Wesley's conversion experience. And Wesley goes on to say, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. If God can save someone through a commentary on the book of Romans, I'm sure God can save you today as well and give you a story about why you follow him. Wesley goes on in his life's work to say something to the effect of that that moment made him become an altogether Christian. That is to say, whereas before he had seen himself as a slave to Christianity, he now saw himself 
as a son. Instead of being a servant of God, he was a son of God. And this is exampled most perfectly in the book of Luke, chapter 15, and the story of the prodigal son. Many of you might know this story, but I just want to focus on a few verses, verse 29 through to 32, the story of the prodigal son, actually verse 28, the the story being that a gentleman had two sons, one of them decided, I don't like you dad anymore, I don't like all the rules and regulations, I want my inheritance now while you're still alive. And so the father, as loving as he was, gave the son the inheritance and sent him off and he plundered all of it, he lost it all. He was sleeping in a pig's pen and eating with the pigs and he came groveling back to his father. Now all this time his brother had remained working for the family and his brother in verse 28 says when the, when the, when he, sorry, when the prodigal son returns, the, the son who remained, the Bible says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his father and said, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might have a party with my friends. But when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you've gone and killed the fatted calf for him. My son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, lost and he's now found. The brother disowns his brother. The father comes in and said, stop calling him my son. He's your brother. But what this tells me, what this story tells me, is that the son who remained in the house didn't realize his identity as a son. Even though he was there and everything his father owns is his from this point on, he still thinks he's got to earn it. He still thinks he's got to earn his dad's favor. He still thinks he's got to work his way into his father's good books. You see, the servant is accepted and appreciated on the basis of what he does, whereas the child is accepted and appreciated simply on the basis of who he or she is. A servant starts the day anxious and worried, wondering, how might I please my master today? Whereas the child rests in the secure love of his family, knowing he's a son. Yeah, sure, I might disappoint mum and dad with a couple of wrong decisions, but they'll still love me. The servant, on the other hand, doesn't have that confidence. The servant is accepted because of their workmanship. The son or daughter is accepted simply because of their relationship. The servant is accepted because of his productivity and his performance. The child belongs simply because of his position as a person. At the end of the day, the servant only has peace of mind if he is sure he has proven his worth through his work. 
The next morning, that anxiety comes back and the whole cycle starts again. The son, the child, is secure all day, knowing that his status won't change tomorrow because he will still be the son or the daughter of the father. So what love the father has lavished upon us, that we should be called his children, it's my prayer that each one of us choose to be known as a child of God. And through that relationship alone, accept his eternal salvation that's offered. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a God who had a plan in place since before any of us were even thought of, except we were thought of by you. Each of us have struggled at times in our lives to try and be something, be better, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing excellence. But when it becomes the focus of that excellence being our salvation, we've lost the plot. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every person here will receive an outpouring of knowledge and security in the fact that we are your children and there's nothing that we need to do more in order to earn your favour except accept the gift of salvation as you've already provided it to us. Be with us right throughout the rest of this day, right throughout the rest of this week, and may we choose to be children of God each and every day. I pray in your name. Amen.